blessings of love and of fear God, I love my church, I don't even care who hears Don't even care who hears Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Every Little Voice, the podcast on community music brought to you by all of us at Community Music Schools of Toronto, which is expanding from the Regent Park School of Music. And we're delighted to present season four. Enjoy. And if your little voice and my little voice get together when we make a joyful noise, and my little voice and your Welcome back to Every Little Voice. When I set off to learn about the Community Music Schools of Toronto's musicking approach, some pretty big questions about music and identity emerged. Whose music do we teach and why? What do our musical traditions teach us as students, artists, and community members? And how will music education continue to evolve to meet the diverse, holistic needs of young learners. Youth music education is intertwined with academia. Questions of curriculum building, pedagogy, history, and activism are being wrangled with on university campuses, and the impact ripples out to places like the Community Music Schools of Toronto. Here's music educator Parmela Atarawala's thoughts on the matter. The whole, I'm not going to say the whole industry of music making, but the tradition of the way that we've been doing things, especially in the Western classical music realm, is it's falling apart. It's crumbling, especially in Canada. I don't know if it's for sure it's not going to crumble in Europe because that's their music. Whether it falls apart to the same extent in the United States, I don't know because they've gone about bringing people in in a very different way and with a very different understanding. But it, again, this because we have multiculturalism, it's a different beast altogether in Canada. and. That being said, the whole thing is falling apart. Universities are grappling with this question of Eurocentricity of music. Music departments are just up in arms. What are we going to do? How are we going to change it? Do you think that the music and curriculum can adequately prepare CMST students for music careers or for higher education? So in terms of how RPSM will help students, like if we shift to this new curriculum, I actually think that as we shift, we'll be ahead of the curve. RPSM students will be ahead of what's coming because it's all going to change. It has to. I'm also joined by Sarah Beijung, arts professor and dean at York University. Here's her perspective on how arts education discourse has been evolving at her school. Certainly in the last two years, the effects of the pandemic and related long overdue racial reckonings and real engagement with the, especially the TRC here in Canada, have really moved conversations that might have been happening in the background or at the margins really to the center in an incredibly powerful way. And I will say right now, in all honesty, much of that has been driven by students. I have tremendous respect and gratitude to the students at York University, for example, who have really championed this and have raised it over and over again with their faculty and with me, and who have made it clear that this is a need that is a longstanding and overdue one in programs. And to their credit, you know, programs and faculty and staff are responding. Bina John, professor at the University of Toronto, 
also felt a cultural shift at her school. After George Floyd uh, wrote a call to action and said, you know what, what's happening at the Faculty of Music, it can't happen anymore. There's too much concentration on Western art. So I love Pamela Adderwalla's definition of anti-racism as being not centering one music or another. In other words, every music is equal, whether it's Ghanaian drumming, South Indian Carnatic singing, or Baroque music, they are all equally as important. And I don't think we've really embraced that. And a lot of the curricula at the Faculty of Music is Western art orientated. And that trickles down to the schools where, you know, the curricula is all about Western art and the feeling that Western art somehow is dominant over other arts. And that is just a product of colonization. So we really need to turn that around. Especially in light of the need for increased representation in music education, what do you think are the strengths of CMSD's music and curriculum? Oh, I think Pamela Atrawala in developing the new curriculum for Regent Park School of Music hit the nail on the head. And so basically, if we're going to look at music or musicking, she uses Christopher Small's definition of music as a relational art. So if the essence of music is relational and making music with others, then we need to re-examine what we're teaching, why we're teaching. And Pamela Adderwala talks about, and I love her definition of anti-oppression. You know, it's brilliant. Centering a student's well-being is being anti-oppressive. Centering a student's well-being, giving students agency and voice, and inspiring students to make music. That's anti-oppression. That's how we can overcome these barriers. And there's another theory, culturally relevant pedagogy, where Whatever you teach, it has to be meaningful to the students in your class. So what is the music that are important to the students in your class? What are the cultures of the students in your class? And it's really important that they see themselves. They see themselves represented in what you teach. If you teach purely Western art and 99% of your children are racialized or marginalized, it doesn't make any sense. But if you were to, you know, really understand the cultures of the children that you're teaching and you incorporate that into your curriculum, then it becomes meaningful. Then it becomes anti-oppressive. So I think the core is who is in your class? What are their identities? Do they see themselves reflected in the music that you teach? If not, we have a problem. Culturally relevant pedagogy is a loaded concept. How do children define their culture? We can't do it for them. We can't make assumptions by just observing their skin color, their mother tongue, their immigration story, or their heritage. Culturally relevant pedagogy relies on the learner's interaction with culture. An example that really touched me was at the Regent Park School's winter recital. A teenager, a black teenager, sang a solo in Japanese. It was a song from a Ghibli movie, and I suspected that she had personally chosen to perform this song. Watching her perform, I personally felt seen and culturally connected, because at her age, as a Black teenager myself, I was also a lover of Ghibli movies and Japanese cartoons and comic books in general, and my love for these things actually led me to move to Japan in my adulthood. And so culturally relevant pedagogy must be inclusive of the way that learners interact with culture and the values that they assign to it. There must be a level of self-determination. So it's important for teachers to not project their own assumptions. 
Bina, as a professor to students who will become music educators, how do you encourage them to think about social justice in their teaching practice? I have changed my teaching completely. I'm offering two courses. One is music and urban education, where my students go to Regent Park School of Music and they attend the choir and the band rehearsals. And they're just seeing a completely different way of approaching music. And they are just so inspired because the Regent Park School of Music teachers understand their students. They center their students and, you know, what the students listen to is really important and they try to incorporate that into their music making. So my students are just watching the Regent Park School of Music teachers like, whoa, like that's the way it should be, right? Like these students are just so comfortable. They know they're valued. They know that their music is just as important as whatever music that we're supposed to teach. And it's a completely different ballgame. Ultimately, when we're talking about anti-oppression, centering learner identities, and challenging Eurocentric traditions, we're talking about the redistribution of power. And when it comes to education, the classroom is where power gets played out. Here's Sarah's insights on how learning environments are currently evolving. I think there is an opportunity and a recognition that we have to truly become more learner responsive. And there's a lot of conversation around being student-centered, but I would say that that's very different than being learner responsive and really reaching into active learning environments, which is not just about how do we teach students better or what do students need to learn, but what are the co-creative relationships that we need to form between the different people who are participants in the learning exercise. And that's a really challenging thing because it gets to the question of hierarchies and authority and power. And I think one of the real challenges around centering learner activities and learner perspectives and learner identities is that you have to come into the room as an educator knowing that you have expertise in certain areas, but that that expertise is a bounded that it is not limitless and it's easy to fool ourselves sometimes and think that it is, but it may not also be what's most important in any discussion. And I think we are in a really critical phase right now of being open to that for the first time, or maybe open to that more expansively than we have been. So beyond developing technical skills, how are students encouraged to engage in a university music program? I think that often people think of schools of arts and performing arts and design music programs as being very much based on the cultivation of innate talent. But more than anything else, I think what the programs in my school do is also cultivate imagination. It's really thinking about what are the skills that make someone able to connect the dots. And sometimes that's about connecting the dots between what already exists and what might exist. Sometimes it's about connecting the dots between different groups of people. The way I describe it is that I think that education in general, and and this is really critical to equity concerns, is that we need to move from what I think of as a conveyor belt education, which is, you know, you get on at one end and it's all kind of laid out for you, right? Because you're really, as a student in that environment, you're just waiting to be stamped and shaped. And to the extent that that doesn't feel right to you, historically, you then end up feeling like somehow you are the problem, right? Or you're not living up to and right fitting within this this structure. Here's Bina with an example. She describes how she asks her own students to connect the dots by introducing underrepresented music to high school students as a means of modeling self-advocacy. So one project that my students are doing with this Toronto District School Board project is that they're going to go to the high schools and say, 
this is the music I love, but it's not taught at the Faculty of Music. And I'm going to teach you this genre, and I'm going to tell you why this is so important. And then the next step will be the high school students then have to say, I really love this music, but it's not offered in my high school. And here's why I think it's really important that we learn this music in my high school. You know, so it's a whole idea of what is the music that speaks to you? And that's very important because it speaks to your identity. And how can we incorporate that into the curriculum to make it meaningful? So if we want students to cultivate imagination and move away from the rigid expectations of a conveyor belt education, then what's the alternative? My vision and one that I've been talking about a lot in our school and that we've been working towards in a number of different ways is to think about education as a subway system in which everybody gets on at a different place. Everybody's got a different destination, but we are all connected. We are dynamic. And at the end of the day, we are irreducible. What makes a great public transit system is having lots of different connections, lots of different people, and lots of different destinations and places where you can go. And that's how I see the beauty of an arts education. It is dynamic. It is collective. We all get on at a different place and we all may get, you know, end up getting off the train at a different place, perhaps even different than we thought we were getting on when we began. This idea of, of a dynamic, mobile, collective approach to education has to be part of the systemic change of a decolonizing of curricula and the university itself, because it is by definition a less hierarchical, more agentic, more empowering approach to learning and exploration. I do want to say just one other thing, which is people are their most creative and their most imaginative when they are secure. Because when you feel safe and that you have a safety net, that is when you can take the risks that will lead to the greatest revelations and the greatest understanding and the greatest transformations. So innovation comes not from an environment of competition and threat. Real innovation, real creativity comes in an environment in which everyone is allowed to and supported in taking risks. And that I think is also, we don't talk often enough about it. And that does not exist independent of excellence. We can be rigorous and provide enough security so that people feel like they can take a risk, fail, learn from that failure, and then turn it into something really special over time. like this was a reassuring thought to hear from an educator. If safety is assured, then how does this positively affect young artists? I think that in the big picture of things, this question is at the core of how CMST operates. By considering children's socioeconomic needs, their mental health, and cultivating acceptance through representation, playfulness, curiosity, and creativity can thrive. What I chose to emphasize in this curriculum was the social aspects of, you know, this social curriculum. And I looked at what those priorities were, and it was much more about the spirit of the individual and how can we be healing to the spirit of the child? How can we make sure that, you know, emotionally, mentally, culturally, socially, we're really doing something to nourish the child? And that was why I chose music. To really let us think about what does music do to us? How can it help us? How can it be that place where we express all of those things, whether it's our ethnocultural background, whether it's the angst that we're going through as we go through puberty, whether it's jumping up and down, 
or whether it's just playing our instrument when we're feeling rotten or when we're feeling great or whether we want to hang out with our friends and make music all of those things that music does to us thank you for listening to every little voice season four Find us wherever you get your podcasts and please go to www.communitymusic.org to learn more about our organization. I'd like to thank our interviewees, starting with Tomas Muir, also Drs. Sarah Bay Chang, Bina John, and Parmela Atariwala. We couldn't do this amazing season without our co-producers. That's Danielle Muir and Evan Desonier. Thank you so much for all your hard work. All the music that you're hearing this episode is performed by students from the Community Music Schools of Toronto in collaboration with our friends at the Kingsway Music Library. Tune in next month for the next installment of Season 4 of Every Little Voice. Thank you for listening. <laughs>